Ahoy, fellow space salamanders! And welcome aboard the Joy of Trek, a transwarp podcast exploring the warp barriers and tritanium alloys of Star Trek. All, All of, of it. it. I'm Kaki. I'm Kay. And out on the shell, Cochrane is your chief engineer, Greg. Together, we're on a mission through the dark matter nebulas of Star Trek to find the daddy issues in every hotshot pilot and the good in every episode. Even the mutants. Because every episode must be someone's favorite, and it might as well be us. So explode in your simulator. Oh, God, I can't believe I wrote that. And join us as we micro-fracture our way through the oh, joy, joy of, of Trek. Trek. <laughs> How's that for an intro? That's a fantastic intro. <laughs> I tried to go pigs in space at the end of that, but it didn't quite work. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and Hi. welcome aboard. Today we're discussing Star Trek Voyager Season 2, Episode 15, the world-famous Threshold. Hold. Is it world-famous? Oh, yes. It appears okay. on many, many lists where right. there are rankings of certain episodes <laughs> okay. of Voyager, and, and many of them contain this Threshold. One. Right. Yeah, very yes. near the top. Uh Okay. Uh, because famously, like, Greg, can you remind us what happens? A specially outfitted warp-capable shuttlecraft piloted by Tom Paris successfully reaches warp 10, breaking the transwarp barrier. But the side effects of breaking the barrier may cost the crew of Voyager their best helmsman. Thank you. And this episode was actually recommended to us by our chief engineer, Greg. Oh, well, in that case, he can uh, give us a little uh, talk over how and why this was uh, such a memorable episode to him. Threshold is a controversial episode, and in rewatch, I can see all the reasons not to like it. Hey, don't hedge, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> Just like something, yeah. right? That's what we're all about. But also, it's such a corny episode, and the premise drives it forward a lot until we get to what I love most. Threshold is a monster movie. It's like the original Universal monster movies, Frankenstein, The Fly, Wolfman, Dracula, and the movies that I watched with my brother as a kid. The section with Tom transforming is my favorite part. The resolution and the end? Yeah, it's silly. But the middle part where it's straight up a monster movie just brings a smile to my face every time I watch it. What a fantastic... What a fantastic yeah, absolutely. Of I can totally get on board with that description. Yes, the I'd... whole part, like, especially as soon as you said monster movie, then my mind went to the fly, indeed. Yeah. Because that's, exact, that's exactly what's happening. And uh, the, the scientific hubris and the consequences that well, we can't oversee. Unforeseen circumstance, which was caused. And Much like, like in the fly itself, where it was a, right. you know, a scientific breakthrough through teleportation. Yeah. And then an unforeseen consequence. Oh, no, there was a fly in here with right. me. And now no, we've no. been m- mixed and mungled up. Right. Yeah, it is a fairly universally panned episode. And now that we've watched it again, I think unfairly. Okay. <laughs> okay, you're not on board. <laughs> Let me see if I can pull you along before your nacelles rip off my fuselage. Okay. So, Brandon Braga. Oh, bless him. The writer of this episode, who's given quite a few interviews about this particular episode, uh-huh. one of the things he said was that it's a very classic Star Trek story, but in the rewrite process, he took out the explanation. He got a note that that wasn't necessary, and this was an explanation about why they turned to salamanders, and it was a, right. a, a, hypothesizing that evolution isn't necessarily like forward in the same complexity that we're, right. uh, that we're seeing, but that it might be towards some state that's physically like seems to us more primitive but like devotes more energy to the brain and become more okay. spiritual like there was all sorts of stuff that is not scientifically accurate but no. still interesting and i would yes. say that's like the biggest gripe i would have with this episode oh absolutely because there's like loads of yeah it's very unscientific and very even from there it's the techno babble is 
off the side. I think Star Trek, certainly in this era, has a proud history of not understanding how evolution works. Fair. Because evolution does not happen in individuals, then it's called mutation, and it's usually right. cancer. Yeah, or, good point. Right, yeah. Stability, I, mean, or, I mean, that's one of the comments that I have. Like, that's not how evolution works. Right. Evolution is like you're reacting to outward pressure. Exactly. There yeah. is no direction. There's no, like, forward or backward. There's an environmental pressure that a species responds to through two mechanisms. Spontaneous mutation, which happens all the time. Yep. And death. Selective breeding, Which happens yes. a lot more. Yeah. Well, selective breeding doesn't, I mean, barely even exists. You're not, you don't select for a reproductive partner. You just reproduce with someone who isn't dead. Fair enough. But yes, I mean, it's still selective breeding, but it's like you're not making the selection yourself. You know, the circumstances are making the selection. Yep. It's like the people who are doing better. Like, yeah, they, they live, they get to breed. Uh, the Companion, which is an online magazine that discusses a lot of fantastic science fiction of the era that we're interested in and does some really, really deep dives. They did a lot for Farscape mm-hmm. when we were recording a podcast about that. And they had a piece where they'd consulted with two scientific advisors who'd worked on Star Trek before mm-hmm. on the sort of scientific accuracy and like they also point out that evolution is quite different from what the Star Trek writers understand and they pulled the example of the peppered moth I think I'm saying that correctly it's a famous example a species of moth that lived in England and lives on birches and it's and its wings are white peppered right so they resemble birch bark until the smog problem became pretty bad toward the late 1800s yeah and all Um, the birches became grey yeah they became pretty brown because they're they're very absorbent yeah and so all of these moths were being eaten because you've got these lovely white moths on the dark oh, birch. Oh, right, yes. Except one in a number yeah. is born with an inverted pattern. Now, normally those are eaten first. Yes. But now suddenly they survived. And so the selective breeding was, oh, I select someone who is not dead. Fair enough. Yeah. Occurred until the Clean Air Act of like the 1950s and 1960s. And now the opposite happened again. Exactly. And, yeah. it, and, it, and it switched <laughs> back. Like, and that happened within a human lifetime just because moths live and die very, very quickly. Yeah. Oh, that's quite cool. Yeah. Should we get the other scientific inaccuracy out of the way? Okay, go on then. Which one? Infinite velocity and being everywhere at once and yes. like still being inside the shuttle and like... Everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. Yeah, actually, the one thing that I'm going to have to ask our chief engineer about is like, has Warp 10 actually never been broken in Star Trek? Because I'm pretty sure it has. I'm pretty sure there have been episodes where like, oh, now we're going Warp 11 or Warp 12 or whatever, Warp whatever the bleep. Uh, Let's find out. Yeah. <laughs> That's correct. case. Okay, so Warp Factor 10 was used in the original series Journey to Babel as well as Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Warp Factor 11 was in The Changeling and By Any Other Name. Warp Factor 14 was in That Which Survives and Warp Factor 15 was in The Changeling. The animated series had Warp Factor 22 as well as Warp Factor 36. But then in the 24th century warp factor, they decided that warp factor 10 corresponded with infinite velocity. That's the in-universe answer. The out-of-universe answer, the production answer, is in a document dated May 14th, 1986, attributed to Gene Roddenberry, places warp factor 10 at the top of the scale. Beyond that, time-space continuity is disoperative, and the corresponding velocity is given as the speed of light multiplied by the speed of light times 10. Whereas warp factor 2 is now the speed of light squared, implying a general rule, making warp a logarithmic scale. 
it's nice to have you out there on the shuttle Cochrane, Greg. It's just unfortunate how the communication system doesn't seem to work. Yes. Speaking hey, but- of the shuttle Cochrane. Yes. Actually, that leads me to another question. I know that famously Voyager burns up shuttles. Do they keep changing the names? Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. In this case, the shooting script named the shuttle Drake. Right. And then I think, like, during editing, it was realized, oh, no, the Drake explicitly exploded yes. <laughs> 15 episodes ago. So, oopsie whoopsie. I think it's uh, Ex Astrociencia, a fantastic, nerdy Star Trek website. At one point, they did the calculation of, like, the number of shuttles that have been destroyed. <laughs> it's too big to physically fit inside Voyager, even if you stripped out right. <laughs> all the inside bits. And it was just... <laughs> I guess I keep making new ones, you know? I guess, in the magical manufacturing bay where they yeah. also produced photon torpedoes that they were definitely going to run out of. At now, least once the, or twice, yes. For the first few seasons, there really was an effort that sometimes failed to sort of keep track of this, and then uh-huh. that was just sort of abandoned because... I guess if you had a lot too many script writers working on it, kind of like, you'd think it like they put up something like, you know, a wiki page or something, like oh, which they, everybody has to like... <laughs> and they did, yeah. a lot of the time. And, and, you know, a lot of potential inconsistencies were caught, like Voyager... It holds together very well as a semi-serialized show. Right. As we get a little bit of in this episode. Warp 5. Warp 6. Warp 7. I've reached critical velocity. Tom Paris failing to achieve transwarp and ending up sitting on the floor of the holodeck. I'm approaching the threshold. But the nacelle isn't holding. Tie in auxiliary power. It's no use. I'm breaking up. I'm breaking. I know. He's so dejected because he blows up and you've got Kim and Balana. I love how they're just kind of like hanging over the, (gasps) with a somewhat exasperated expression. And like, (laughs) it's not quite sad. Like, it's, I I think that's a really well done shot where they're like. And you immediately feel, okay, they've done this 89 times. Yeah. And they're tired of getting their hopes up. You're dead. Um, but it was only a test, and they haven't figured out yet how to make it work. They're gathering in the mess hall, mm-hmm. Helix's mess hall. Yes. Hey, should we give introductions for all these characters? We kind of should, right? I so suppose. Ensign Harry Kim. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. It'll just be really natural, right? Okay. So Ensign Harry Kim, the operations officer who's like a first-timer, but also like a bridge officer on this show, playing uh-huh. by the lovely Garrett Wong. And you have Roxanne Dawson playing the half-Klingon uh, senior engineer, Melana <laughs> yeah. Torres. And Tom Paris, the hotshot pilot, who, oh, yeah, actually... Look, looks, quite, looks quite young, actually. And that's the first thing I noticed when he was sitting in the shuttle. Like, oh, wow, he looks really young. For some reason, I had him as much older in my memory. Well, he actually played a cadet in one of the episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, yes. But here he's an ex-Marquis man, one of the people who was on the crew, uh, was who came with, um, what's his face again, uh, Chakotay. I think he was taken out of prison by Janeway specifically because in the past he knew Chakotay. Oh, that was it. Yeah, it, it was Tuvok who came with uh, Chakotay. And, but he was the infiltrator. Yes, exactly. Yes. And not the only one. Causing Chakotay at one point to question... Like, was anyone on board that ship working for me? <laughs> <laughs> which, so, speaking of which, there is a traitor on board to the I Voyager. Oh, another one? Yeah. <laughs> well, we might as well talk about it now, because it's, it's only a single scene in which he's talking yes. to the broccoli head people. And, uh, the Kazon. Oh, is that what they're called? Sure. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 ca- the kale's on. God, okay. <laughs> Why were the comms on for that one? 
Like, I happen to really delight in your cleverness, but I am going to pull on the reins when you dive into, like, maligning an entire species based on physical attributes that are perfectly normal for them, okay? Sure, but you can't, like, blame me for having associations with that. No, that's fine. Yeah, there's an engineer who secretly transmits a bunch of data to... uh, All the data, the 500 kajillo gigabytes, or I can't quite remember what the number is that Balana mentions... It's over 5 billion gigaquads of information. Oh, that's the astrometric data. Do you think he sends that or the telemetry and, no. the, and the science? Oh, more? good question. I don't know. Because it I, seems like a lot of data. I mean, if it is everything everywhere all at once, then the memory banks of the shuttle would be full instantly. Yeah, but sensors have a maximum throughput time. Right. And, like there's write speed on, on various no, exactly. storage so, mediums. I don't know. We get to see that he's trying to ingratiate himself with the Kazon, who are hmm, cautious about their yeah, they're, uh, they're, skept- they're skeptical about the claim that transwarp has been achieved. And that's it. Yeah, that's all we get in this episode. So maybe we'll find out how that I, resolves. Yes, in, I mean, when in several years I'm sure we return to season two. <laughs> Here is a scene that I really, really love. The three of them, like sort of. College students or, like, work buddies. Absolutely, yeah. They're sitting there in the mess hall, like, pouring over their homework, trying to figure out a way to make it work. It's the pylon again. Every time we get close to crossing the threshold, the subspace torque rips in a cell off the shuttle. And you can tell by the way that they sort of say ideas and then shoot each other down. What about a duranium alloy? We could try using it to reinforce. No, I thought about that already. It's too brittle. They're not undermining each other. They are a bit short with one another, but they're still trying to inject fresh ideas. Right, yes. And uh, <laughs> Neelix, in his apron, I love seeing Neelix in his apron, comes in to inject... More coffee? First of all. Yes. And a fresh perspective. And I really like this scene because they, they sort of dismiss Neelix. Right. And he stands up for himself. No, hold on. What are you saying? I'm not smart enough? I'll have you know, I did two years as an engineer's assistant aboard a Trebalian freighter. I'm well-versed in warp theory. So was that actually true? I mean, I'm not, like, you might have been an engineer's oh, wow. assistant, but, you know, you might have been, like, sweeping the warp. Uh, might have been uh, custodian uh, or... I don't know. It's like, it was, it, it, it may, may or may not have been true. Let me put it like that. He is known to, to as a... Exactly. Not a fabricator so much as a fabulist. Like, he, he's sort of optimistic about the past and the future. And it's something that I really love about Neelix. He's not a very popular character, and I don't, mm, I don't approve of that because... He's like Waymond from Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mm-hmm. Um, is he the husband? Yes. Yes. Who is also sort of bubbly and optimistic and kind of pathetic in many ways. And like he describes it like that's not naivete. It's how I influence the world to be better. Right. And in, what happens in this case is that he's basically the rubber duck. Yes. Rubber ducking. Explain that to you. So it's a thing that uh, programmers tend to do is like if they have a problem they take out a rubber duck or whatever anything that can pass for it and just like explain the problem like you would to someone who has no idea what you're talking about or who doesn't understand your craft exactly and And in thereby doing so and putting it in different terms often leads to a mental breakthrough because suddenly when you're explaining it the problem to someone else it allows you to look at it from maybe from a fresh perspective or at least to offer inroads into the problem and that's what happens here that alloy could depolarize and create a velocity differential the fuselage would be traveling at a faster rate of speed than the nacelles that means we just have to set up a depolarization matrix around the fuselage that's it 
It's like this is one of the he heavy techno babble parts. It's like it's not the struts that are shearing off the shuttle. It's the shuttle that's shearing off the struts because it's going so fast. It therefore goes slower and therefore it breaks off and it makes absolutely. I, I couldn't make. I was I was listening to it. I was trying to follow it as far okay. as I'm concerned. They can contradict themselves at least two or three times. Okay, that means that I've got to be on the side of this this episode. No, because, uh, in fact, like there's one difference. They don't hear themselves explain it and then realize it. No. Neelix gives an illustrative example. I remember there was a time when I lost a warp in a cell going through a dark matter nebula. This is a very different problem. Once again, very tolerant of yeah. their uh, demeaning attitude. But it's an example where there was a speed differential. Yeah. And they go, yeah, well, there is a speed differential. But then Tom realizes... We've only ever assumed that the propulsion units would be faster than the craft they're attached to. Yeah. It never occurred to us to examine the other possibility that somehow some phenomenon occurs where without propulsion, the craft the is going fuselage faster. itself, right. because of like negative friction or whatever spacey wasty well, thing that's, yeah, happens that's because the material properties, like it's something that, that they can understand, but they wouldn't have predicted because it's, that's not how propulsion usually works. Right. And... Indeed, the next simulation works fine. Warp 9.92. The pylons are secure. Everything looks good. They're actually running a simulation of the shuttle because, of course, they're as also running... As they can. Figure, yeah, well, that's an interesting point, actually. Mm -hmm. How does the simulator know that this is going to happen? That the, uh, the, yeah. I mean, unless um, the physics model has knows this, uh, what would happen at transwarp, how does the holodeck know that this, the shuttle is going to break apart? Yeah. Because there's nothing in the... <laughs> and if it does, how can they not figure it out? How right. can they not like, they find this in the logs or ask the computer exactly. to interpret it for them? Because the computer chose to blow up the shuttle right. because something happened that it... Or because it predicted something. Right, yes. But hey, maybe it's like how, you know, large language model AIs now work in that they're just fundamentally not really understood why these results come out. There's a lot of rules that are understood and there's a lot of emergent uh, yeah. behavior as well. And not all of it is correct. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? When you came to me a month ago and said you had a way to cross the transwarp threshold, I thought it was more of a fantasy than a theory. The whole command staff is in the briefing room sitting around the tiny, tiny sort of craps table yeah. that they've got that I've never understood why the sort of central gully is there. And they're watching on the screen the success. And Chakotay actually shows some emotion. To be honest, it's almost frightening. Up till now, it's all been theory. I never thought it would actually happen. Are we ready for it? He asks dramatically, yeah. and Janeway says, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, let's, let's go home. On. Let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> In the last couple of centuries, we've always managed to use new technologies wisely. I'm confident this time won't be any different. Have you seen Star Trek 2? Do you know about the Genesis Project? Is it still classified? Is that the problem? <laughs> no, very good point. <laughs> there have been a lot of episodes that contradict you. A lot of, like lo of oversights by the ethics committee. Let's put it like that. Yes. <laughs> So, okay, well, optimism there. But, but yes, there's a very summary plan. It's like, yes, we're just going to go 
we're, we're going to break it right into a transwarp and then immediately shut down the engine so that will uh, uh, presumably don't go everywhere at all, all at once at the same time, yeah, which they later that? famously don't do, but never mind. Um, <laughs> and here we come to the actual crux of the episode, because mm-hmm. that gets lost. This is an episode about Tom Paris and his sort of inadequacy complex. Right. Like, he was a gifted kid, like very many of us uh, uh, were, you know, how as a kid, a lot of people talked about, oh, you have so much potential. Right. And then around the time you turned 20, you stopped hearing that. Yeah. And then, you know, toward 30, you started to realize, oh, shit, if I did have all that potential, I would have realized it by now. Right. Why why didn't anything happen with that? Yes. I thought it was going to happen on its own because the captain even says, If this works, you'll be joining an elite group of pilots. Orville Wright, Neil Armstrong... Zephram Cochran and Tom Paris. Only humans, by the way. Right, yes. But, I mean, these are human discoveries. Well, in human history. Right, Orville Wright and and, and Chuck Yeager, you know, who uh, who broke the sound barrier. Right, and And then Zephram Cochran, also human. Who broke the transwarp, oh, sorry, the the regular warp, the first human to go into warp. humans, yeah, exactly. Right, yes. Like the Vulcans, they had their own warp drive. Everybody had warp drive. I mean, that's how the Vulcans found them. It's like they were just flying around looking for warp signatures. And, like, if we see them... Then, uh, oh, we then know we can that land and say hello. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's where the, the Federation's policy uh, comes from, the, the, the Prime Directive policy yep. comes from, a Vulcan thing. But yes, I mean, of course, maybe it's not, not even known who actually went into warp first. Was it the Vulcans or did they get it from somewhere else? We don't... Yeah, I, I, start, I yeah. mean, there's, there's probably like non-canon lore and lots of fan lore right. about that. But there had to have been a first, yeah, a first right. species to... Oh, I think that was in a Next Generation episode when there was a first species who discovered that they were alone in the galaxy and so yeah. they seeded their DNA Ew, like a bunch of perverts <laughs> on lots of planets. Oh, speaking of perverts, doesn't Tom Paris have a lovely dress on when he's oh. relaxing in his... Uh, is that a dress? I thought it was a bathrobe. I do not see why it is necessary to wear these ridiculous uniforms. Protocol. They look like dresses. That is an incredibly outmoded and sexist attitude. Surprised at you. Besides, you look good in a dress. Yeah, but it doesn't, like, fold over. Oh, it's more like a kaftan, I guess. So it's a V-neck. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Kaftan is also a nice way to look at it. I think it's cinched. I think it does have a belt or something. Uh. I can't entirely tell. I like that. But yes, the the captain comes in to like address her concerns because there's a minimal. Ch- he's got like some sort of enzymatic d- imbalance in his brain, and this this might create a two percent chance that something happens at transwarp speeds. Because again, we know how to model things that happen at transwarp speeds, despite never ever having been gone and been there. Boo. No, <laughs> the doctor says he can't model what's going to happen. It might be a problem. There's a two percent chance that, it, like, out of all the possibilities, two percent of them, you might have a massive stroke yeah, but wh- because of why? something in because, subspace that yeah. affects your brain. Okay, but they know subspace. Yeah, uh, but not how it. Like, it, it's different when you move real fast. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, but like, think about it. Like when the oh, what was it? The rocket, like the first steam train. Right. Right. Oh, I'm, I may be mixing up some stories, but there was a real concern that moving that fast would melt your brain. Among some people. Well, yeah. yes. So not really a real concern, but no, to the point where... which is absolutely bollocks, because people on a horse could, could travel that fast. Not I for know. very long periods of time, but, you know, and people couldn't breathe at those speeds. You know? Right, and they erected sort of barriers so that innocent passers-by wouldn't have to see the pilots liquefying like they were in a wormhole-traveling prowler. <laughs> Deep cut for the Farscape fanboys. 
<laughs> yes. I mean, there's always some concern, right? This is why sure. the, the space program involved, like, first sending animals into space, because it's probably fine, but we won't know until you actually try. Mm. And then it turned out, like, oh, there's, there's bone stuff, and there's... Well, yeah, that turns out, it comes out much later. But yes, the captain goes, like, so you're not flying, Kim's doing it. And this is a punch right in the ego. Yeah, he's capable. That's not the point. What is the point, Mr. Paris? Yeah. Because <laughs> here's when he tells the story, like, yes. oh, I, I used to be a, a special kid, and everyone said I was going to be special. And, and I want to be special. This isn't about personal redemption. We're talking about medical risk. Your life could be in danger, and we need you. Captain, this is the first time in ten years I feel I have a life to risk. And therefore, the captain goes like, well, in that case, like, we'll forget about the 2% risk and you can do it anyway. Good luck, Lieutenant. Do you not think that that's a good decision? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. Like, she, because she talks about, like, we need you, right? They have, right? they have our pilot. He's a very good pilot and nurse, I think, at this point, And he's, he's indispensable to the ship. Right. So there's a risk that he'll be killed in the course of this mission. But yeah, there's a risk that's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the certainty that he will be emotionally devastated if he doesn't get to go, which may impact his performance okay. permanently. Right. Right? It may impact his confidence, his relationship with, uh, with the captain. Now, you don't always have to take that into account as, say, as a commanding officer. It's like, okay, considering the circumstances on Voyager, that might be something. No, normally, I would say, like, yeah, that's literally of no concern to her. But yeah. considering we're on the the special situation that Voyager is in, exactly, that's like resource that, constraint. You're right, that becomes a thing. Yeah, no, and so, her decision oh. could have gone either way. I, mm. I think I would have supported it. Taurus to bridge. The pre-launch sequence is complete, Captain. Acknowledged. Ensign Kim, depressurize the shuttle bay and open the space doors. Aye, Captain. Bridge to shuttlecraft Cochrane. You're cleared for launch. Hi, Captain. See you at warp 10. And it goes swimmingly. Yeah. They try to keep up, then the shuttle suddenly disappears. Captain, he just d disappeared off sensors. Increase sensor gain to maximum. Nothing. I can't find him. He's gone. And I'm just like, why is this surprising? Yes. Weren't you expecting that? Yeah, well, yeah this isn't this literally what you were expecting to happen. It's like, but also, he was at warp 10, and you still had him on your sensors, and you were still tracking him? Right, until they didn't. And I he was supposed to, like, immediately cut the drive as soon as he pulled over, which he also didn't do. It's and like, yet, you're so not really no, we sticking are. to your testing protocols very well here. <laughs> well, clearly something was happening. I mean, we hear him say... I'm going to... Oh, my God. <laughs> It's you like know, it, it my also, God, it's full of stars. Right, yes. I was going to say it goes all Stanley Kubrick there yes. for a moment. I do love this whole scene because it's separated between you've got Belana and the traitor yes. in engineering. And they're on the upper level where they've got a little atrium and the rest of the crew on the bridge sort of keeping track on him. So despite the fact that this is just like a radio conversation, it's tremendously exciting. Yes. But yeah, they're gone. Ship's gone. They try to find him. They search the sector. He's not within five parsecs until suddenly... Bloop, 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 bloop. <laughs> Shuttle appears back in. Exactly like that. That was a dead-on impersonation, Kate. <laughs> yeah, it's a really weird effect where it's sort of poured out of hyperspace like it's being squeezed out of a tube. Bridge to transporter room two. Beam Mr. Paris directly to sickbay. Commander, bring the shuttle aboard. I'll be in sickbay. 
according to the doctor examining him, he was just asleep, you know. Can you wake him, doctor? And the doctor goes, yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah. <laughs> and he leans over. <laughs> wake up! Wake up! Wake up, Lieutenant! Like, ah. <laughs> and she rolls her eyes, but she doesn't say anything because, yeah, oh, I, he did just say yeah. he's asleep. And how do you wake up someone who's asleep? <laughs> I choose to interpret that uh, look of Jane Ray. Okay, okay, yeah, that was dumb of me. It's yes. like that was a, that was a me thing. Yeah, like even if I don't acknowledge that the doctor has agency and an internal life, then he's just an implement, and I gave a bad instruction. That <laughs> my bad. So, yes, uh, he goes on about how amazing it was that he, like, everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, it was with the Klingons, and, and, the galaxy. And it's fading. It's like, oh, no, the memory. It's like, a, Yeah, I'm not surprised. How's your mind, bud? I know, right? <laughs> it's not used to, like, having to store more information than, like, one second per second with about, you know, a few hundred square meters Yeah, it's not suddenly being omnipotent, I suppose. Omniscient. Well, not omnipotent. Omnipresent. Omniscient. Omnipresent. Yeah. Right, everywhere, yeah. all at once, yeah. yeah. I was staring at the velocity indicator. It said warp 10. And then as I watched it, I suddenly realized that I was watching myself as well. I could see the outside of the shuttle. I, I could see Voyager. I could see inside Voyager. I could see inside this room. Yeah, Balana comes in to say hello. You brought it back without a scratch. The onboard sensors confirm that you did it. You made it to warp 10. Congratulations, Mr. Paris. You've just made the history books. Like, fantastic, everything done. We have the stupid amounts of data. Yeah, uh, storage speed. Oh, yes, I think you're right that the spy is going to transfer all that information because you you get a close-up of him sort of peering over his shoulder while Balana's talking about all that, oh, uh, yes. that data about every cubic centimeter in this sector. Oh, can I say one more thing? Yeah, uh, of course. Tom goes... It was like... And then he says... Well... No, it wasn't like anything. Which I loved. I was just holding my breath for a really bad analogy. Yes. Right? To uh, explain uh, here things we go. to the it's, audience. It's over 5 billion gigaquads of information. Gigaquads? Is that's, that what it that's says? That's what it says. It's over 5 billion gigaquads of information. No. That's what, that's what the subtitles say. Oh, it's no. It's over 5 that's... billion gigaquads of information. <laughs> I'm going to assume that that's a subtitle because that's, that's, that's like some gigawatts. Gigaquads. <laughs> It's always been convenient that they use quads as a unit instead of bit, because who knows what that is? Yeah, I mean, maybe they're on, like, there was, like, talk about trinary computing. Maybe they're on quadri... Quadrinary? Quadrinary yeah. computing. Which, which would be a, a vast increase in the possible, like, storage, but, like, this is I mean, it might be, or it might be quantum computing, you know, the qubits, you know. Uh, oh, yes. I think that's Quad bits, qubits. Well. Oh, Yes. But yes, so lots of data. And now they have to wrestle with the possibility, oh, it's real, it's real. Like, are we ready for this? Yes. If we could figure out how to come out of transwarp at a specific point, this could get us home. And I'm like, like, oh, this is gonna like make warfare interesting. Uh, like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really appreciate that that's not where their minds go. Uh, they go, there would be nothing beyond our limits. And I was, like, why isn't Tuvok there to say, oh, therefore it must be impossible? Because otherwise we would have met someone who used Warp 10 to reach us. Right. Fair. If it was possible anywhere in the universe right now, someone would be doing it and they might have... But they might have chosen not to go. Right. Yeah. So why would they choose not to go? Oh, maybe it's a... Uh, huh. 
maybe there's a second prime directive that you don't use warp 10 to, right. f- to go to planets that don't... Or maybe it's, that's how the Q continuum works, you know? Oh, dear. Maybe they're all salamanders on the inside. Neelix tries to ingratiate himself in, in the story again. Once again, yes. This is a new blend. I'm calling it Paris Delight. Paris Delight? Ooh. Oh. No, Paris isn't particularly delighted, though. It tastes horrible to him. Ah, uh, yeah. Smells fine to, uh, to Balana. Balana. But we know that Balana has weird tastes. <laughs> See, do we? I think so. She grew up on Earth. She's half human. I think she's culturally predominantly human. I, Yes, but I th- seem to recall a few early on episodes where Balana's tastes in food are mentioned. Oh, interesting. I can't, yeah. Maybe mm. we'll encounter that in the course of maybe, our uh, uh, Maybe voyage. our chief engineer has something to say about that. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> hey, Greg, Greg, what are we talking about right now? <laughs> oh, sorry, no, I knew you were talking about me because I may or may not have just gone to Warp 10 and have seen inside this the room where you're recording. So the only instances that I can see where Bolana mentioned food specifically was her love for banana pancakes with maple syrup, which was mentioned in Extreme Risk, as well as her love for potato salad with paprika and fried chicken, as we saw in Renaissance Man. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. God, it's nice to have him around. So poor Neelix is uh, is rendered irrelevant. But this is where the monster movie starts that Greg was, right. was talking yes. about. Because it seems like a perfectly normal scene. Smells okay. No, trust me. You're taking your life into your hands. Yeah. If she tasted it, she would have noticed it was fine. Yeah. Turns out that Paris is allergic to water now. Yeah. Human evolution, baby. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's terrible to be allergic to something that you are made of. I know, right? 70% or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's like in your mouth all the time. Medical emergency. Beam Lieutenant Paris directly to sick bay. I, I can't lock onto him. His pattern keeps changing. Taurus to sickbay. We need a medical team in the mess hall right away. I love the sickbay on Voyager. It is very cute. It's a really compact set, but it's so cool. Doctor uh, soon realizes that the air must be filled with, what is it, kind of gas? Acidic chlorine, which sounds real bad. Right, Because when he starts uh, gasping, he realizes that the alveoli in his lungs don't process oxygen anymore, and they need some other gas. Acidic chloride, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah. Never heard of it, but... No, but it sounds bad, right? True, yes. Yeah, it sounds like something that you normally wouldn't want to breathe. No, absolutely not. I also want to give a little shout out to the two supposedly medical or science personnel who bring Tom Paris from the mess hall into... With blue shirts, yes. Who just drop him on the bed and then walk away. Yeah. Like, famously, the entire medical staff was killed when they arrived. That's why Tom Paris had to become a nurse. So when they asked for a medical team, what is that? I guess it's the first aiders on duty... Oh, yeah. And they just dump oh, him in the, like, yeah. in the med bay and then off they Let go. Let the doctor sort it out. So there's like, yeah, force fields erected. And it's interesting that like the, the when the doctor walks back through it, it actually, there's like a little flicker of the well. force field. It's like, why would there be? He's a hologram. Yeah. <laughs> well, he did at one point point out that he can be, you know, soft light and hard light. Right. So maybe there's something. But yeah, that's all. Yeah. Also, why does he need to work a console? That's like, I noticed that as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No. It's, it's, it's like, it's shut the door. Here comes the PowerPoint. <laughs> uh, I have a lot to say about this because he's software, right? I know, right. He's not like an entity that's being projected here in this room. Like he is well, yeah, a collection of sensors. Yeah. yeah. No, that's just an interface. That's not the device itself. Oh, right. Yeah, that's not the doctor. Yes. That's just There's his no appearance. There's no reason. Yeah. Well, you know, when he picks something up, it's actually being manipulated by various force fields and, and right. tractor beams and yes. whatever. So there's no reason why you can only do that in one part of the room 
at a time. There's no reason no, why there absolutely. can't be 20 of him or just you can have like a, a Fantasia scene where all the devices just fly around on their own. Yes. And yet when he is updating the medical records, he sits in the office behind the terminal, tapping away uh, yeah. <laughs> and working on the... <laughs> but hey, if that's his choice, who am I to, uh, yeah. to argue? Now we get... It starts to go the fly. Right? right. Yes. You're losing me, aren't you? I'm going to die. You're too stubborn to die, Mr. Paris. Because, because you can see he's physically deteriorating. He goes, yeah, his skin goes flaky. You can see the veins under his skin. And his, his eyes become red and moist. And yes, <laughs> he is like waxing. Well, he is delirious. He's, he's getting deranged. Del- uh, del- delirious, I would call it. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about, like, the big funeral that he wants. And do you ever notice that Balana doesn't cry? Well, Klingons don't have tear ducts, so maybe she just didn't inherit those. Oh, fair parents. enough. Yeah. But yes, it doesn't last long. He quickly dies. Wait a second. Having seen through time for the rest of this episode, neither of you ever mentioned one of the most ridiculous, ridiculous lines in this whole thing that I absolutely love because it makes no sense. Tom, while he's dying and he's freaking out and everything, what does he do? He screams, and he screams, and he asks for... Pepperoni! God, I'd love a pepperoni pizza with Kavarian olives right now. I'm starving! And it's a level of ridiculous like that that just makes me love this episode. And neither of you mentioned it, so I had to just jump in here and make sure that that line was given its proper due. Yep, it's just a fairly, straight up just... fairly quick death scene. Like, yeah, the neural uh, stimulator gets uh, applied, and uh, what's her name? Kess, Kess, whom he asks to kiss him. But right, she goes no. like, no. Yeah, really, and the, not and really the feeling it. Yes, the, the, oh, there's gas. This unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. not just like a completely irrelevant request. Yeah. But she violently presses the controls on I the... I noticed that as well. <laughs> when, when she activates the neural stimulator. The doctor stimulator. yells and she goes, Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> We're really serious about saving his life now. And Tom's last thought is to let his dad yes. know that... Uh, that he that, did it. That yes. he did it. Do me a favor. When I'm gone, call Starfleet headquarters. I tell dad that I did it. Tell him. God, daddy issues, yes. Yeah, all the best cowboys have daddy issues, don't they? <laughs> and now he's dead, and they leave him just sitting around on an yeah, unrefrigerated just, table. They just wander off, although they, later they put a sheet over him, apparently. But Yeah, yes. okay, cool. It's going to have to be an autopsy in the morning. You don't generally leave corpses lying around in what should be as sterile an environment as you can Right, have. you know, you'd think you'd put him in the fridge or whatever, or in a force field somewhere. Yep. Not just leave him on the... If they're going to do an autopsy... You're going to have to put him back there tomorrow anyway, so... Yeah, that's like the, a minor inconvenience yeah. for, like, eight hours of hygiene. Right. You, and you might, besides, yeah, you might suddenly need the surgical table in the meantime because yes, something else... the uh, one bio bed that right, you have. Yes. But if they'd done that, we couldn't have this scene because yeah. it's, it's dark, the doctor's tapping away. Oh, he's working late again. Mm. Oh, and tomorrow he was, he's, like, he's two days away from retirement and his grandkids. <laughs> he's, too old grandkids. For the sh- he's too old for the shit. <laughs> and he hears a strange noise, which he goes to investigate on its own. And yes, he wanders over and yeah, this is like little horror movie. They don't, they don't do a jump scare, which is admirable, I guess. Yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of afraid of cats. <laughs> it would give me a little fright. But yeah, it turns out that, oh no, he's alive anyway. You're alive. And now he's breathing again, and his normal organs air, are fine. Yes, he's breathing normal air, and again, in fact, he has plentiful organs now. Such plentiful organs. Deep <laughs> Invader Zim reference there, bro. Because yeah. <laughs> he's got two hearts now. You have two hearts. Turns out. Yeah, we even get a little graphic of those those two little guys just yep. sort of nestled in there together. Right. And he, this is where El Traitor is like throwing the data out. Yeah, he's got a special little sort of scrambling device, and he's got like one hand is continually like yeah. tapping in some numbers to extra scramble. He's got like fifteen seconds in which he can like send this before security is going to notice him. And that's the end of that plotline. Yep, at least for this episode. And then yes, the next day, his body is going through some sort of mutation. His DNA is rewriting itself. To what end, I don't know. Does this have anything to do with the enzymatic imbalance you found? No. A really thoughtful and sort of gentle and caring discussion here, I think. Like, she's really interested, and he's giving a very thorough explanation of this pretty complicated case. Yeah. And also warning her, like, he has moments of lucidity, but... Pretty disgusting, huh? You looked better. He's also got moments where he's not so nice. What I'm becoming will probably be better than who I was. Lieutenant, you know that's not true. Oh, yes, it is. Which we get a great performance by the actor who plays... Uh, I have no idea what... Uh... Robert Duncan McNeil. Right. He gives a great performance here, I would say, in this next scene, where he, he literally... He's a little bit manic-depressive. Oh, yeah. You're lying. Just like him. Just like everyone around here. Always lying. Always telling me that I'm doing a good job, that you're glad I'm on the ship. But none of that's true. Insults the captain, tries to attack her at one point. Yeah. Uh, apologizes then. He goes through a whole spectrum of emotions and yeah. uh, actions. Which is really nice to see on Star Trek, which in this era was often like pretty understated. In fact, I saw in an interview with some of the actors, some panel at a convention, and they talked about how when they were hired as the crew for Voyager, they were instructed by Rick Berman to, like, play it real, real low. Don't yeah. don't make the emotions too big. Make it actually kind of stilted. Because then the rubber-faced aliens in prosthetic look more lifelike. Oh, right. Right, that's the way. Fair. Yeah, I guess they'd never seen Farscape. Guess, where the solution yeah. to making them more lifelike is just to have have them have, like, sex a lot and, yeah. and do just weird and stuff. And make really good... And put really good actors in them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a dig. Hey, we're still the joy of Trek. Which yeah. is not a dig. Like, it's a different approach. But they could have also gone... You could have gone real sexy and achieved the same goal. Right. But I guess, like... Or sexy, hire the Henson crew to... Yeah, uh, I guess sexy aliens in Star Trek are not really... I mean, you've got the like the green-skinned Zarblaxian princesses or whatever they call the, them. The Orion, quote-unquote, slave girls. Right, and, yes. Uh, but uh, that's, everything associated with but that. But that's always, that's always the more humanoid ones that like get the sexy yes. looks. There's like, a certain like trend of things that are considered sexy by 40-something white Californian uh, yes. Hollywood or television people. And with the, outfit, with, with the outfits, which I believe were once uh, formulated as said, like, it's not about what they expose, but yes. it's the threat of them falling off, which makes them say... <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. That's the, uh, the William Ware Thice, or Tice, I think, theory of titillation. He was the costume designer on the original series and also in the beginning of The Next Generation. A gay gentleman. Yeah. His family, uh, so to speak. And yeah, he, he realized that... Uh, as you say, it's not about how much skin you show. It's about how likely it is to accidentally fall off. Yeah. 
But not titillating is Tom Paris, who, like, he looks like a Vidian. Do you remember those guys from Voyager? They were... No. Oh. <laughs> no. Uh, it was a species that dealt with a terrible, terrible disease, and so they, oh. they constantly, like, replaced parts of themselves. Oh, okay. So sort of, they looked grafted, because he's got one eye that's going milky. milky yes, and, got, and, like, more, more skin flaky. Flux uh, of His hair. tongue falls out. <laughs> yeah. And he almost, like, offers it to her, like, yeah. hey, uh, uh, I'm not using it. And he tells her, I get a little bit, which he, he yeah. clearly tells her, talk without moving his tongue. I need to talk. Yeah, I think this, maybe, is where most most people sort of checked out of this episode, <laughs> because while Robert Duncan McNeil does a, does a fantastic job, he gets so much to do, and he's riveting to look at throughout the episode, speaking without a tongue is not a great look. No. Just, it comes across, and this is unfortunate, of course, because there are people in the world who have to speak without a tongue. Yes. Right? It's a very unfortunate condition. But it just, the sound of it to our unaccustomed ears doesn't match the gravitas of the situation. Very true. Uh, He's trying to, like, proclaim something that he needs to get out there. The present, the past, they're both in the future. The future is in the past. Yeah, uh, he says some weird shit. It sounds like he's just trying to get back into the shuttle, I would yes. say. that's. Uh, and this is, I think, also some, something that's missing. We don't know why. No. That motivation is fascinating. There's something going on in his brain. So either it's a derangement or maybe there really is something that's calling to him. Yeah, between the doctor and Balana, they devise a treatment, which is antiprotons. Yep. Because basically they need to blast all the the new genetic material out and so that the old genetic material will come back and like antiprotons know exactly which old uh, genetic material is old and which is new so they can blast that away we're going to have to come up with some term for when when I put on a special hat to start defending this. And hey, next time that you prepare an episode, yeah. K, it's going to be your responsibility to wear this special sash or bandolier. Let's see if we can come up something with it. But here we go, Red. Oh, shields up! That's what it is. Shields up. I'm coming to the, to okay. the defense because if it was caused by something, uh, uh, I wanted to find something that's like timey wimey, but then for yeah. warp. It doesn't really work. It's just warpy warpy. Horpy warpy? Torpy warpy torpy. Warpy torpy. So it was caused by something warpy torpy. So. The, 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 how, how antiprotons know the difference between old and new DNA? Well, it may be that the new sort of code is tagged with whatever effect or saturated right. with some kind of property that the other atoms some in the body are. Some transwarp effect, yes. Yeah. We'll have to take the warp core offline, then I'll need about three hours to set up an interface. In three hours, there won't be anything left of Mr. Paris to save. We have to make the attempt within an hour, at the most. You know, and that's interesting, because that's something that famously, like, Belana resisted. There's yeah. there's an early episode when she's made engineer, and, like, she gives an, an estimate to, uh, to Captain Janeway. She says, oh, it'll take eight hours. You have four. No, Captain. When I say tomorrow, I mean tomorrow. I don't exaggerate. So plan around that. <laughs> Oh. And of course, there's, there's the famous episode in uh, Next Generation where uh, Scotty actually shows up <laughs> and he has that discussion with Geordie uh, about. Uh, <laughs> yes, no, you always pad it. Yeah, like, no, how, how, long, is it, how, long, how long did you tell the captain it's going to take you? And he's like, oh, about no. an hour. It's like, how long is it going to take you? About an hour. Yes. <laughs> oh, laddie. You've got a lot to learn if you want people to think of you as a miracle worker. <laughs> then again, it's, maybe it's a bit like uh, buffer time on the Cerritos in uh, Lower Decks. Oh, I'm not that familiar. I've, I've, <gasps> oh. seen, I've seen some of Lower Decks, but I kind of 
checked out of that at some point. We're going to have to bring you back on okay. the joy of Trek. <laughs> hey, I have a favorite person in this scene because while I love when new stuff is being done in engineering, there is an engineer who's just straight up standing there facing the warp core, not doing anything. Yes. Actually, well, he's like behind the barrier, the, the, the barrier surrounding the warp core. is like behind the fence. Yes, the health and, then, and safety uh, rail. Yes, and then later on he stands behind it just watching, I guess. Maybe he's there. Maybe he's the axe man. Uh, <laughs> sounds axe, but, you know. So more antiprotons. No, more antiprotons. Five seconds of antiprotons. While uh, the Doctor and Cass are monitoring over a television screen. Which is, I think this is actually a very cool scene. I don't wonder if they did this, like, out of budgetary reasons or just out of preserving a certain amount of uh, tension. Because we see the entire scene from the TV screen that they are using yeah. to communicate with Balana. We we hear a struggle in the background. Suddenly there's phaser fire. Yeah, uh, Balana runs away and it's just an empty <laughs> screen and suddenly there's screams and phaser fire and a chair and like, oh no, oh no, we've set subspace on fire. Oh no, oh it's terrible. Oh, why are there whales? And yes, <laughs> then the screen gets hit by a phaser and it's turned off and the doctor goes like maybe we should call this one in it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah tuvok says it's a security emergency which is why uh, the captain is getting strapped she's uh, sliding her phaser into her holster yep cool. and they can't find him so yes tuvok has to send out uh, search deck by deck for tom who has shot the warp nacelle or something like that can't quite remember what he did it was yeah like, he shot oh actually greg what was it that he shot he used a phaser on the port plasma conduit we have power failures all over the ship. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, this is handy. And suddenly, uh, Commander Chakotay is informed that the shuttle bay is depressurizing. And he gives uh, a really great... Well, what? Yeah. Well, first, the captain gets jumped by Paris. Oh, yes, the jump scare. Yes. That was an actual jump scare. Well... Because she hears something behind her. Yes, and, and you see her reaching for her phaser. And it's a famous, like, one-punch knockout again. Yeah, that's real bad for you. Right. It's real bad. Uh, her phaser goes off, and this is like that. That's when we get the like phaser fire detected on deck seven or oh, deck six. I think it was. There's no crew there. Yeah, Tuvok gets sent there, but they only find the captain's phaser. No captain. Then we get the shuttle bay depressurizing. When Chicote says, "What?" <laughs> he just says it like that, <laughs> like it's Robert Beltran, the actor, sort right. of going through. What? Nothing can be done about it. Tractor beams offline because of uh, what happened, and. Paris and the captain zoom off to transwarp. They try to keep up, but even as they're giving her all she's got, Captain! Yep. Warp uh, 7, 9.7, but yes, they have to like drop back to warp 9.5 because they can't... The she cannot take any more, yep, Captain! The ship is shaking itself apart. Well, fly her apart then. I've got a quote for everything. Yeah. <laughs> if Greg actually pastes in these clips from other shows, I'm oh, going to be uh, really impressed. <laughs> wow. I can see through time. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I don't have to do your work for you anymore. It's amazing. Oh, well done, Greg. And yes, now this is when the doctor has apparently figured it out after three days of like just looking at the data. He's like, oh, yeah, he's just evolving. The mutations we observed are natural. Natural. The changes in his DNA are consistent with the evolutionary development of the human genotype observed over the past four million years. Which we've already talked about, so we don't need to be shitty about it again. Yeah. <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> but they managed to find the shuttle after a couple more days of searching. Yeah. I think I found the shuttlecraft, Commander. It's on the fourth planet in one of the jungles near the equator. And there they find... Two lizards. I 
did not actually look up whether these are animatronics. I think that the large uh, sort of salamander-like creatures yeah. have performers inside them. Oh, okay. Uh, they didn't seem big enough for that, but... Oh, oh, I'm so sorry about last time there, guys. The doctor just treated me for whatever happened in the shuttlecraft. So, as far as the salamanders go, Dan Curry, the visual effects producer, does say that there was a little person inside and was able to move it around to make it look alive and lively. But the three babies that we see, they're a little bit of CGI and, okay, and yeah. a little bit of janky. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the basically they shoot them with phasers set to I stun. I know! Yeah. And that's the first thing you do. Oh, here's an alien speech. No dialogue. Yeah. No, like, consulting their screens or whatever. Like, they just draw a weapon, these slow-moving creatures, and just phaser them. Phaser one yep. and the other one. And then the babies run away. Apparently there's still some human DNA left. Hmm. Obviously. Which they've uh, scanned them for. Uh, yeah. So and these must be the captain and Tom, but... But I have to admit, I'm not sure which one is the captain. And Tuvok says, well... <laughs> the female. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a real cool exchange where Chakot says, well, I don't know how I'm going to talk about this in my log. Yeah. And Tuvok goes... Mm-hmm. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own, buddy. And this problem is now... Yes, the big genetic reset, the genome reset button gets pushed. The DOCS proton, uh, anti-proton treatment uh, works. Yeah. We don't see any of it. It's just like we get the typical Star Trek uh, shot in sickbay. There's like a little voiceover and then cut to the scene in sickbay where the entire problem has been resolved. Hey, but shields up. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think that Voyager does this a lot, where the reset happens real quick like yeah. I, I remember several scenes where the doctor and you don't have to cut in these clips Greg it's okay I'm just yeah. going to talk about it for a little bit where the doctor says and you know through a rather ingenious method that I'm not even going to explain right now yes. I fixed everything and I should be I should be praised because like in the past Star Trek has spent a lot of televised minutes just talking about like right. making up excuses for why it's now been reset yeah. and we can also just skip those yeah. and then we can have more minutes where <laughs> Fair, fair, fair. Right, so that's kind of the attitude. This is where the whole sort of discussion about evolution is missing that I think would have given a scientifically incorrect, but still philosophically interesting, potentially, Mm. topic to think about. Right. But instead... We get a little discussion between... A somewhat embarrassed discussion between the captain and Tom Paris about the fact that they now have alien offspring. I've thought about having children. But I must say, I never considered having them with you. Yeah. Which is technically not alien, because they're still human. Oh, yeah, good point. (laughs) Yeah. Kate Mulgrew did speak later that she was kind of uncomfortable with this concept of just having had sex with a crew member. Right. And, like, we don't really deal with that. No. But, yeah, this was the, the, the... It was still the 90s. Uh, and people didn't talk about things as much as they ought to. Yeah. There is the point that, that she makes that, you know, in some species, it's the it's the female who initiates right. mating. Yes. Either way, apology accepted. And then there's a really heartfelt moment. But before we get there, okay. Yeah. Uh, in my research, I also found the companion sort of mentioned a fantastic Twitter thread, which was posted on Threshold Day, 2022. There's mm-hmm. an actual Threshold Day, January 29th. Okay. And the day before that, there was a Twitter thread from the Vagina Museum in London. Okay, no, yeah. It's an actual yeah, museum yeah. like about the, the vagina, the female reproductive right. system in, uh, in, in humans. And they talked about, like, did they fuck and what was it like? So let's yeah. look at salamanders, right? Because that's sort of what they look yeah. like. 
Uh, and amphibians in general have a few different ways. Like, they don't have explicit genitals. What they've got is cloacas. Right, a, yes. Uh, a pee poop and reproductive opening that they do all the business through that isn't right. eating. And yeah, fair. And so salamanders, like, sometimes they have fully external reproduction. So one of them lays eggs and the other right. one deposits sperm over them. That's what I mean. That's what I thought was, like, like yeah, fish-like. I mean, I think that's fro- how frogs do it as well. Uh, yes, and spawning as well, yeah. sort of like uh, like fish do it in water. And then there's something called amplexus, which Google that because that's quite a trip. Okay. And then there's this method that salamanders use where the male salamander sort of deposits a little packet of sperm. Right. And then sort of does little dances and to convince the female salamander to waddle over it and, and sort of... Absorb it into into okay. her through her cloaca, and like there's a lot of dancing and like wafting and like pheromones to to That's... get her interested. Okay, I'm not sure I needed that mental image, but I didn't either. You're welcome, Kay. <laughs> yes. You're welcome, listeners. Because <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> even if we couldn't make you like it more, maybe we can make you like it less, <laughs> and we'll still have had some. Effect. Wow. <laughs> But I still think that this episode is redeemed because this conversation between them is great. Mm. Because Tom, he realizes that he was hoping for a quick fix to his, you know, sense of inadequacy. I guess I went into this looking for a quick fix. I thought making history would change things, not just my service record, my reputation. Not, yep. It's not quite as useful as it, they, they was hoping it would be, but who knows? They might like work out the kinks at some future problem. Because this is Star Trek, they like you know, the, the big ideas like this. They often get worked upon and they evolve themselves later in the uh, uh, in the future. Yep. And it's not like something that like a, a potentially fantastic technological development gets used once and never mentioned again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see you haven't seen Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, because Voyager is a road show. They're not supposed to get home. They're supposed to be on right. the road. It's the wagon train to the stars. <laughs> as, uh, 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 the original series was. But was, no, I will have to. Uh, I, I will have to agree with our chief that the way to like this episode is yes, yeah, see it as a horror movie. Yeah, like it's got those real tense moments, and and it has at its heart a really important sort of emotional arc, which also ends with like the acknowledgement. No, it's not just fixed. He's been put in for accommodation. But it's not over, and you know, yeah, and we're not at home yet. Line. Yeah, he says he has quite a few barriers still to break. Yes, yeah, but you know, and she's like, but she's supportive, and she's like, oh, I'm pretty sure he'll be all right. Maybe she's just doing that because she's just been told she has to spend three days in oh, sick bay, yes. and he's going to be the only one to talk about. Oh, crikey! Well, the doctor and Cass, I guess. Yeah, so I better help you deal with this problem and like emotionally resolve it for you so you'll just leave me <laughs> alone about it i mean what i would do in the captain's case is just like claim the doctor's uh, little uh, side office and okay from here i'm going to now be running the ship and you can go sit over there and yes <laughs> this is this is now my office for the uh, my, my stateroom for the next three days and you can go do your thing over there in the medical bed okay so we don't have segments yet no but do you, are there are there any bits that really sort of stand out to you, bits or or people? I know it's still, it's still in four to three ratio. That's it's the nineties, man. That's yeah, going to last until that's... the end of Voyager, and then Enterprise starts with widescreen. Oh, okay, right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean stuff that like jumps out at me. Yeah, and that the captain decides to like throw caution to the wind in order to enable that. It might be a slightly uncharitable way of putting it, but it's not not entirely inaccurate, I would like to say. Yeah. 
Well, I'm going to... Let's let's see about the, the, the costume department. I really like Tom's caftan. Right. And I, to, be, to be honest, I, w- I wasn't too keen on Tom halfway through. He looked a bit, like, you know, odd and weird. But when he started going full salamander oh, yeah. head, he looked fantastic. Yeah, like, from, yeah. From, from the moment on that he was lying in the anti-proton bed, he looked absolutely... His, his, his makeup uh, job was absolutely fantastic. Fantastic, right? Yeah. The sort of professionalism between the Doctor and the Captain during the scene where they're discussing, like, Tom's current condition. Yeah. There was a real care and, and sort of well, focus I, there. I think the Doctor is my favourite character in this episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He does very well, and not just because of the, wake up! <laughs> <laughs> Which is very on-brand for the Doctor, I think. Oh, I'm trying to think of, like, what we can talk about that, that other podcasts haven't done. I mean, we, we shouldn't be limited. We can celebrate the same things that uh, that other podcasts do. But, like, the, the greatest generation, the greatest Trek they famously have there, Drunk Shimoda, like the person who's having the most fun. Yes. Which I think is the guy who's standing completely still. <laughs> what about, like, the most inexplicable? Because then, to me, it's the it's either that guy or it's like the medical team that seems to exist and then and just then just, just just yeah disappears what, off screen again. Like, what are you like? They're I mean, they're, I know, they're, 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 green, they're they're blue uniforms, so that means they're science science, science division, dip- yeah. divisions. Yeah. So I don't know. They, but, are they like volunteer firefighters? That's, I guess they must be just like the two burliest guys around who can like who are known to easily be able to carry a body. You know. In the science department. Uh, maybe they maybe they lift, <laughs> Known you know. for the thick-armed gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. No, maybe they're geologists, you know, they have to, like, lift. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of those, some of those, like, real ripped scientists. Oh, like yeah, those rock lifters, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, Kay. Yes. Have I convinced you? Oh, and, and Greg, have we convinced you? It's a fun show to watch, right? Voyager, in general. No, this episode they're oh, watching right now, because that's... the... the Oh yeah, totally. Yes. Okay, great. I mean, there's plenty. There's plenty to like pick apart, but like you know, it's Star Trek. It's like yes, and we had fun with that. We're constantly going to. I think we're going to like run into that a lot of things. A lot of things. The the, the things to pick at are actually essentially always the same things, and it's just like at the core of Star Trek. Yeah, and the science different ones of those different eras. Right. Yes, we're probably going to encounter a lot of situations where that's not how evolution works. <laughs> well, that yes, or oh, that's not how space works, but. But it sure is fun nonetheless. It is, it is absolutely lovely. It's, Including it's, it's, this. Like, even and, picking them apart is fun to do. And it's good to see that, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of love and attention went into it by everyone involved, of course. And that's something that yeah. needs to be celebrated as well, I think. Because I don't think anybody sets out to make a bad episode. Yes, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. Kay, you're completely right. No one in the entire history of Star Trek has ever just sort of sat down. Let's make a rubbish one. <laughs> or let's just, like, really phone it in and not even try or care. Yeah. There's always got to be someone. Maybe it was the makeup department. Maybe it was a particular actor, Robert Duncan McNeil in this case, who really sank their teeth into it and tried to make it excellent. Well done. All right. Thank you for joining us. Um yeah, we still don't really we have, still an don't outro. have an outro. No. Hey, Greg, how about you, you take this one? We'll think about it for next time. <laughs> hey, I wrote an intro this time. Greg, Greg. Thank you, Greg. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode with your friends Kay and Kaki. Production and editing by your chief engineer, Greg, and music by Fox Amore. Join us next time for Discovery Season 2, Episode 5, An Obel for Karen. Visit joyoftrek.com slash links to send us your recommendations, support us on Patreon, or find us on Blue Sky, Instagram, and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Joy of Trek, and we'll see you out there. Joy of Trek.